Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. I'm Kylie Camps and welcome to the podcast. This space is dedicated entirely to making a difference in the lives of women. I believe we all have a right and a responsibility to truly live our best lives. It all begins with curiosity, changing our thinking and cultivating more self-love. Through thoughtful conversations and shared experiences, I really hope that you can take something away from this podcast. I'm a business owner, a speaker, a sleep consultant and mum of twin boys. I've also recently completed some training in the cognitive behavioral therapy space and I'm super, super passionate about the ability that we all have to really improve our days. And ultimately, when we take ownership of improving our days, we're really improving our whole life. So let's get stuck into today's episode. Welcome to episode 78. Today's podcast is a conversation with a gentleman by the name of Conrad Townsend. Conrad is the National Education Manager with the Morecambe Foundation. This is a really big podcast. And when I say big, I mean it is longer than usual. And I also mean it is a big, heavy, important topic. It is definitely one that I would encourage all parents to listen to if you can. Conrad really, really explains some very, very helpful concepts when it comes to a really sometimes uncomfortable and tricky topic that I know many parents can feel quite a bit of resistance surrounding exploring. I will say that throughout this episode, we do speak about and refer to abuse, and it may be triggering for some listeners. So please do practice your own listener discretion when it comes to choosing to listen to this podcast. It's also a podcast that you would want to listen to without little ears around. And even though it is a sensitive topic, I feel that Conrad and I handle it with as much grace as we possibly can and it's so important. It really, really is. And something that Conrad says throughout this conversation is that child safety is everyone's responsibility and I really, really connect with that and I just think that it's important that this conversation is out there for the parents who are willing to listen to it. It is, like I said, a big and important topic to unpack, but Conrad is certainly the man for the job. With over 22 years of experience and a passion for children's safety, Conrad is the current National Education Manager with the Morecambe Foundation. 
He prides himself on his personal and professional motto, like I mentioned, that child safety is everyone's responsibility. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar with the Morecambe Foundation, I just wanted to provide a little bit of context for you. The Morecambe Foundation is a charity founded by Bruce and Denise Morecambe in loving memory of their son, Daniel. Daniel Morecambe was just 13 years old in 2003 when he was abducted from the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. It took over eight years for his remains to be found and for a resident of the Sunshine Coast to be charged with his murder. The Morecambe family were faced with every parent's worst nightmare. I don't think that there would be many residents at all in Queensland who aren't familiar with the Morecambe family in terms of just the loss and the heartache that that family experienced. Like I said, it's every parent's worst nightmare and I have often thought of them over the years and I've... I. It's hard to even talk about them without bursting into tears because when you really, really think about what they have gone through and then what they've been able to achieve, it is nothing short of incredible and inspiring. The Morecambe Foundation has achieved so much and I really would love, love, love every listener out there, if you enjoy this episode, if you listen to it and find it valuable, please go to the link in the show notes and make a donation to the Morecambe Foundation because they are out there making such a difference to the lives of children by educating them, by providing framework and resources for parents to have these tough conversations and for parents to know what to do should the unthinkable ever happen. So, from me to you, this podcast is a completely free and independent resource for listeners. And, you know, the most I normally ask is, can you take a screenshot and pop it on your Instagram stories? But today I am asking if you find this valuable, if you have enjoyed any episodes of the podcast, please go and make a small donation. And I know that times are tough right now. Times are really tough. But if you can spare a couple of dollars, it will all add up and make a difference absolutely to what the Morecambe Foundation are able to keep achieving. And I wanted to just read you the vision for the foundation. The vision is to create a future where all children and young people are provided with education, protection and support to be safe from abuse and risk of harm. The foundation has delivered education to over 260,000 students across Queensland and have even visited over a thousand schools and communities across Australia. And as you'll hear in this episode, Bruce and Denise, the parents of Daniel, even make those visits themselves. I just think that that is, it's inspiring. It's inspiring and it's important and it's powerful work. I hope that you can take something from this conversation with Conrad. It is a longer form podcast, but I think that it's just all such important information. And so if you can listen to it all at once, great. But if you need to listen to it 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes at a time, that's fine as well too. 
As always, I would really, really appreciate it. If you do jump over to social media, you can find me at Kylie Camps and let me know if you find this podcast helpful and informative. I know myself, I really, really love longer podcasts. So let me know what you think. I am certain that there will be parents out there who will take something from this podcast and I hope that it lands with whoever needs to hear this. Conrad, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk with our community about the important work that you are doing with the Morecambe Foundation. Not a problem. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And I'm really excited to learn more about the education side of things in particular and ways to protect our children, because this is just a topic that I am super, super passionate about getting the info out there to parents. But before we do that, could you share a little bit about yourself and also your role within the foundation? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm originally from Wales in the UK. Uh, I've been living in Australia now for four years. Um, so I'm a bit of a newbie, uh, <laughs> but I love it here. And I think Australia is a fantastic country uh, with so much on offer. Um, I, historically, my, my work with children and young people started around 22 years ago. Um, I spent quite a bit of time doing volunteer youth work, community work, and then I, that basically um, progressed into work in Eastern Europe, um, setting up programs for children in countries like Romania, um, where, where poverty and disadvantages um, wow. at, at quite an extreme and that for me triggered a, a, a change in career really because at the time I was an interior designer so I, wow quite a leap oh yeah absolutely and um, I spent it quite a lot of time working with uh, clients who were rich famous in the west end of London and um, I couldn't reconcile that world with the other worlds that I'd seen. And so I, so I decided. Polarizing. Oh, completely. Yeah. Absolute contrast. Um, and I realized that I needed to, I needed to maybe take a shift because it wasn't, wasn't working for me. Um, so I took, took a bit of time out. I traveled, came to Australia for a year, about 15 years ago. Um, and I, made the decision that I wanted to actually pursue a career to actually make a difference. So I went back to uni, did a degree, um, and then I I actually ended up falling into quite high-end child protection work. Uh, so a lot of my work involved um, work with children who had uh, sexualized histories, um, and that included children who had been sexually abused, displayed harmful sexual behaviours. Um, that then progressed on to work with missing children or children that regularly went missing, uh, child sexual exploitation. Um, and in amongst all of that, I spent quite a lot of time working with children in out-of-home care because they sit, um, they sit within a bracket that's particularly vulnerable to um, abuse. Uh, so that was kind of how I fell into where I am now. Um, 
Yeah. And I've spent a bit of time prior to coming to the Daniel Morgan Foundation. I uh, spent time working for an intensive family support service on the Sunshine Coast. Uh, finished up there and went into becoming an ind independent consultant, delivering training and consultancy services on child exploitation. Um, so that involved traveling interstate, uh, training uh, professionals, uh, policy makers. So, yeah, quite a variety. Yeah, and it definitely sounds like they've got the right man for the job in being their national education manager. Just before we move on to talking about the education in school, I would just love to know how do you personally hold space for everything that you've dealt with? And I know that this wasn't a question I mentioned <laughs> that we were going to touch on, so I'm throwing you a curly one, but just listening okay. to your story there. And also, I'm kind of getting lost in your accent. It's so lovely just to listen to you. But so just, just keep talking. Um, but no, I would love to know, because obviously you have seen some of the most confronting things that, you know, the everyday person's not exposed to, thankfully. But how do you consolidate that and make space to hold that within your life? Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. And I've been asked that quite a few times over the years. Um, and... I think the reality is you do have to, to an extent, you have to compartmentalize. Um, and this particular, this particular field of work isn't for everybody. Um, I think you do have to have a certain level of resilience. Um, and resilience is something that's born over time. It doesn't, it doesn't always just appear. And um, I think it's important to to make time to actually switch off, do other things. Uh, it's a funny one because if I'm ever at a party or a function or an event and I meet new people, invariably the question is, what do you do? What, what do you do for work? And I, I kind of hate those moments because the moment you tell people, oh, this is the world I work in, um, it's normally met or often met with shock, horror. Wow, that's really extreme. Yeah. And um, often you'll get people delving a bit deeper or they'll suddenly relate their own experiences or they will relate other people's experiences or discuss situations and cases they've encountered. And, of course, you then end up in work mode. Yes, um, and it just opens up a whole other avenue that, you know, it, you're not necessarily willing to, I guess, access that compartment in that time and place. Yeah, it, it's about striking a balance because I'm very much a firm believer that um, child protection is everyone's business. So I don't I don't think it's necessarily something that you should just switch off completely to. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, I think you have to strike that balance. and I, And I think it's understanding context to when you're having conversations and how far you're going in a, in a conversation. Um, I do think that there needs to be greater awareness. Um, I, I think we, as, as humans, we have a tendency to um, enjoy, I think, a naivety. Mm -hmm. um, it's very easy for us to take the stance of ignorance is bliss. If, if I don't know it, I don't know it. So um, 
what is there to worry about kind of thing. But at the same time, that's not without um, impact because if we take that stance, then it means there are those that suffer in vulnerable situations when technically we could do something about it. Mm. So, so I think it's important to take strike a balance. And um, for me, I make sure that I have a fair bit of self-care time. I, I like to I like to go running. Um, I like to get out. I like to do stuff that is completely disconnected. Um, but at the same time, um, I I also ensure that I don't desensitise myself because I think if we become desensitised to um, the extreme end of child protection, we can become complacent and um, that can cause us to allow those who are vulnerable in society to fall through the net. So, yeah. I, so I, do, I do think it's about striking that that delicate balance. balance. And I love what you said about you believe that child protection is everyone's business. I think that that is just such mm-hmm. a such an important statement to lead with. And I I know just through reading your pre-show notes that the Morecambe Foundation was looking for someone like you with a background in working with harmful sexual behaviours to lead their key projects and have a focus on that subject matter. And so now being the national education manager within their foundation, I know that delivering in school education is part of the work that the foundation does. So could we just speak a little bit on that? What does delivering the in-school education typically entail? Yes, so there are actually a few platforms um, through which it takes place. Uh, So Bruce and Denise Moore can both actually go out to schools um, to do sessions. They'll actually, often that will occur through request from schools. Um, And at the moment, that's generally just been in Queensland. So they will travel right up north. Um, They've been into remote communities, going into schools, delivering key messaging um, and really, I I guess, connecting um, with school communities um, because they're able to bring, I would argue, a unique uh, aspect to the reality, yeah. the reality of just seeing them would, is enough to really, really open your eyes. Yeah, absolutely. And and they have um, they're very engaging with with children. So they they actually come down to their level. Um, and I think that that connection, they're real people. They weren't qualified in this industry. They came into it um, by default through some pretty horrific circumstances. In the worst way possible. Yeah. yeah. So I think the fact that for them, um, their context is different actually helps people to connect more strongly, I think, with with the whole um, issue of child safety. Well, absolutely, because it puts a real face to it, a real set of eyes. Like, I don't think that there's anyone in Queensland who, when you mention the name, the Morecambe's, doesn't mm. instantly see the posters of Daniel that we're also familiar with or the face of Bruce or the face of Denise and just that, you know, the undeniable pain but also the undeniable strength in what they are 
working on moving forward. So I think that it's absolutely incredible that they're going into schools and that would just have such a profound impact. Oh, for sure. Uh, absolutely. Um, and it's essentially underpinned other aspects of, of the educational um, side of things as well. So uh, as you may or may not be aware, the Queensland government partnered to produce the Daniel Morecambe Child Safety Curriculum and that sits within the um, health and well-being sections of the curriculum here in Queensland. There are other states um, and, and some schools in other states that use it uh, but that essentially um, basically delivers three phases of learning uh, from prep to year two then year three to year six and then year seven to year nine so um, it's really delivering a key message of, of recognize react and report um, but helping to structure it in a way that is understandable across the different developmental stages uh, for children. Um, so very useful and invaluable. And, it, and it's it's put together in a way uh, by the government that actually makes it easy for teachers to be able to actually structure lessons around as well. So very good. So important to have that framework and those conversations. And I like how you mentioned that it, it is tailored to the different age groups yeah. because of course when you mention prep and here in New South Wales we call that kindy and you know every state's got a different name for it which yeah. is so confusing <laughs> so silly but when it does come to speaking with kids about personal safety and unsafe people out in the world it's obviously important we can't under we can't understate that enough but it's also likely to be confronting at times or potentially scary or overwhelming mm. you know all children register things in a different way yeah. so when delivering the education how are the children supported through those range of emotions that they may feel so normally and again it, it depends on context to what education is taking place um, so for instance if bruce and denise are doing school visits they'll normally have done some prep with the schools beforehand to discuss things like um, potential emotional support. The fact that the subject matter also has has the potential to be triggering for some children. Um, and it's not unusual for the education um, sessions to actually lead to disclosure occasionally um, from children. Well, so opening up that dialogue, isn't it? That's absolutely right. So there is work done behind the scenes there to prepare for those those moments. Um, so normally what you have is you have you'll have teachers, you'll have staff on the ground who are actually already um, equipped to to deal with that and provide that wraparound support for any children that do either get triggered or find um, any aspect of the conversation. Uh, traumatic. Um, we also have every year we have um, what's called Australia's biggest child, child safety lesson um, and that's live streamed in uh, last year it hit uh, I think it was about 3,640 schools across the country. And that's um, a, is it a 20 minute 20-minute-ish clip that's available on the website? It, it is. It, yeah. it is. Um, so currently, I think on the website, you can actually view last year's. Um, but 
this um, it'll come when 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 the resources go out to the schools that register to to use it. Um, there's a dialogue around support for pupils and students that that might disclose um, and also uh, trigger warnings in terms of content. The content is normally um, it's not designed to be traumatic. Um, it's it's very much designed to be informative and um, really useful as a, as a tool for kids. But at the same time, as you pointed out earlier, it can vary for different children in terms of what they uh, what they experience and what they feel about a subject. Um, so the knock on impact can sometimes be that um, there's a trigger uh, for something traumatic. Yeah. And I imagine, too, with that framework in the background going on before the education happens and the preparation for the teachers, there would also be communication with parents at home as well just yes. to notify them because yeah. obviously continuing that conversation on at home is really, really valuable. And I know that so many parents resist these conversations for fear of making their child afraid, but it yeah. is important to have these chats. So speaking of home, yeah. how can parents best approach these sorts of conversations with their kids? So that's a very good question. And, it, and it's one that comes up quite a lot. Give us all the answers. <laughs> <laughs> it's so oh, hard to answer that one. I will it? do my best. But actually, <laughs> the answer to that question starts before you even get to a moment of discussion with a child around a situation. So... It actually starts when you're building your relationship <coughs> with a child. Um, if you've got an open, transparent relationship, um, you'll find it easier to talk through difficult situations and moments. Um, we, we have a program uh, on the coast that we run um, for, for young mothers and it's called Talk Early. And the focus of it is is re really around education, educating the parents to um, talk to their children about body safety and, and personal safety. Um, and it's it's very much about starting that communication early, but starting around subjects and other situations that aren't necessarily relating to abuse. Um, if you've got a good open open relationship with your child from a young age where they feel they can come to you to talk to you about anything that might concern them that's actually 50 percent of of the the challenge the battle yeah um and i i always say this to people you actually need to work on the connection with your child first so that when you actually do end up in a moment of crisis you're not having to overcome those communication barriers. You're not you're not having to overcome any any anxiety that they feel about how you might respond to what they're about to tell you. You want them to be able to actually talk freely. So it's, that it's is such good advice. Just having that vulnerable dialogue, that openness, so powerful. Well, it translates right through their life. So if you think about sowing those seeds from the moment they're able to actually start to understand conversationally think about how that'll translate when they're teenagers um, and you actually want to know what's going on in their life but traditionally teenagers tend to be a bit more of a closed book so 
if you've actually worked hard on that relationship early in their in their lives, the trust that they have towards you, knowing that they can trust you with the information they're going to give you, but also knowing that you're not going to react in an explosive way or a, a way that makes them then panic or feel unsafe, that will go a long way towards how they communicate with you when they're teenagers and young adults as parents. That's something that I'm often sharing with our community and, you know, with Instagram because I am fortunate enough to have a fairly large following of parents and there are two things I'm always trying to drive home and one is the importance of that openness and also the power of actually calling body parts what they're called, you know, it's just saying like your penis is your penis, a vagina yeah. is a vagina, like having that dialogue so that it's not, you know, if anything um was ever to happen, they can come to you and know that it's okay to use those words yeah. and have a confidence in naming their body. And then the other part that I'm always trying to push is meeting your kids where they are, which is how you stay connected to them. And, yeah. you know, when we have babies, we get down on their level and we make the baby faces and we play with the rattles. And yeah. that has to evolve and continue all the way through childhood. So and important. I was saying just this week, you know, my two, I've got six-year-old twin boys and everything is Pokemon right now. So (laughs) every day we're having Pokemon battles. And I said, do I like having Pokemon battles? No, I hate it. But it it keeps me in their world. And so for as long as I can... You know, and it will evolve when they get older. It might be online yeah. gaming that I have to keep, you know, some sort of awareness and relevance in. But just that connection, I think that's so powerful that you've mentioned that as the first mm. point before you even get to a place of having these conversations. Well, you've hit the nail on the head. I, I'm, and it's important to remember that when um, when a child has feelings that make them feel uncomfortable or feelings of anxiety, um the the symptoms of that physically may not be any different to when something bad is happening so so they may they may feel anxiety around bad stuff but then when you want them to actually open up to you they may still have feelings of anxiety about opening up and that might actually translate into the same symptoms physically so butterflies in the stomach nausea you know that shaking, sweaty hands, those symptoms may feel the same for them if they're having to try and open up to you about something that they think is is not great, Um, as well as when something else happens that is is bad. So if their association with talking to their parents is negative... There's already that resistance or discomfort. Yeah. It's going to make it harder. It, It will, absolutely. Um, so that connection is really important, and and it, and it does go right through. And you, you're, I, it's really heartening to hear people talk the way you just have when you talk about getting down to their level, getting involved with them in their activities. That's so important. It, it is really important because when you then end up in the online world, which is a minefield. It is a minefield, but the reality is. is the same principles apply. And it's very easy for us to assume that because they're online or in, in that gaming world or they're quiet, they're not causing any fuss, so everything's fine. Um, 
how involved are we in the stuff that's current for them? So while Pokemon might be what's current for your six-year-old twins at the moment, when they're 16 and that's shifted into the online world, how involved will you be at that moment in, in their lives? Absolutely. And that's exactly what I was trying to get across last week when I was speaking about the topic is as parents just surrender to the fact that it's always going to evolve. And the reason that it came up is a mum reached out to me and said that she just dreads playing with her kids. Like, you know, she doesn't enjoy it. She doesn't want to get down on their level. And I was trying to reframe it as if you look at playing and engaging with your kids as an entry fee to their world, (laughs) <laughs> and don't make it, you know, don't make it about, oh, I should be enjoying this as well. But, you know, take that off the table. This is an entry fee into their world. And so as long as they'll have you in it willingly, just keep paying that fee. <laughs> yeah, I, that's a really good analogy. And, and, I, and I think, you know, it's very true. You've got to remember that our, our brains have gone through the stages of development. So the way we're seeing the world is quite different to the way a child sees the world but we had to go through that at some stage as well and and it's important that we understand that you know that this is part of that rite of passage to actually play those games as a child but the relationship that it builds with a child if the parent is involved and actually taking an active interest is huge it pays its dividends later in life because you'll have You'll have um, children who are really well attached to their their parents. You'll have children who um, will want to be open and have conversations with their parents through the difficult times, not just the easy times. And you're more likely to, joking aside, more likely to find they'll want to look after you in your old age as well. So having, um, having that connection is really important. Absolutely. And I even think about it now, you know, I'm 32, but I think that when I'm having a chat with my dad, when he meets me where I am, so to Mm. speak, when he comes into my world and says, how's your workout going? How's this going? How's that going? It's just so much easier to relate. So the whole meet your kids where they are, regardless of the stage, I think is a really, um, a really good goal to have. Oh, absolutely. So that's your starting point, connection. Um, And if you've got your connection there, then it's easier for you to actually build on that. And actually, there are a huge number of resources and tools that can help to facilitate difficult conversations. But if you haven't got that open communication and you haven't got that relationship um, worked on first, it's going to make it still make it difficult to be able to have those difficult conversations. You want them to trust you and listen to you and believe what you're telling them. Um, so it's it's really important that, that that starts early. Absolutely. And how early, like what age would you suggest that parents mm. begin to broach the topic of safety with their kids and with little ones that are much younger? How would you tailor the language to suit? Yeah, so um, really you, you, you've always got to have at the back of your mind the developmental age. Um, you also need to have at the, at the back of your mind if there are any specific learning difficulties or disabilities that might have an impact, how that is going to um, influence their level of understanding. But 
generally um, for your sort of zero to four age range, you really want to be discussing and unpacking feelings, emotions um, during that that age of development. That's when they start to understand or learn about their body, um, the different names. And this is where it's really important to use the correct names in at, at that age so that they're learning really about themselves. They're learning essentially that early part of identity. Um, and within that age range, when they're when they're able to sort of start to understand, you start to get them speaking, conversation, that's when you actually start to identify, help them to identify who their safe people might be, their safety helpers. Um, you could start at a very basic level to unpack safe and unsafe secrets, um, discuss start discussions around public and private body parts you know what 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 does that look like um and some of the key messaging very simple you know my body belongs to me uh and i think starting keeping it simple but starting with some of that key messaging is then the platform that you'd move to really um and you'd be reinforcing it throughout their life but you'd move sort of your five to nine years you'd then sort of start to unpack why I'm having feelings that I'm having, understanding um, how that impacts, what my body clues are. So if I'm not feeling safe, what does my body tend to do to tell me that I'm not feeling safe? Um, looking at public and private places and behaviours, rules for touch. You know, you can really, at that, at that age range, kids are like a sponge, so they will soak up what what you're telling them um and that's when you can really actually start to unpack the recognize react and report um messaging um be because they're more likely to retain that that information absolutely um, and i love everything that you've said and i just wanted to add to that too with the really uh, you know with the younger age group you know the little ones that are under the age of four and whatnot it's not about, because I think sometimes parents think, oh, my child can't comprehend that. I'm not going to sit them down and have that chat. Mm. You don't need to do it by sitting down a two-year-old and having the chat, but it can be at bath <laughs> yeah. time, you know. This is your leg. This is your arm. This that's is right. your penis. Who are the people that are allowed to touch you? You know, that's your body. And I've always said, you know, having two boys, of course, their hands find their penis very early in life. And I've always said, no, that's fine. You are allowed to touch your body and you can do that in your bedroom and you can do that in privacy, but no, you know, no one else's. And it can just be conversational. And then you move on to the next thing. Okay, now we're going to wash your hair. It's not about getting yeah. a toddler down and instilling the fear of God into them. <laughs> but like you said, just making it conversational, I guess. It really, it really is. Because what that does is that normalizes conversation about body. Um, so that then... You know, and I, I hope it never happens to any child, but on the off chance that something does happen to them later on, they're able to articulate what has occurred. Um, I've worked on a number of cases over the years where um, children in those cases have been sexually abused. And it makes it so much more challenging when the correct language hasn't been used for body parts or to describe situations or actions because 
that ultimately will undermine any uh, criminal case. And when you actually look at the tiny percentage of cases that actually make it to court in child sexual abuse scenarios, it's often because children are not considered to be credible witnesses. And so if we're, if we're setting them up with the wrong language or with language that's not consistent or anatomically correct, um, we're just reinforcing that. We're actually making that more challenging um, for those cases where, where something does happen. So Absolutely. it is really, really important. And just for those parents who are listening and they're feeling that it's, you know, it's very scary to have these conversations. Mm. Could you possibly, I guess, speak directly to those parents on how you would personally empower them to push through and have those chats? I mean, obviously everything you've Mm. already said is evidence (laughs) to do that. But is there anything else that you, I guess, would speak directly to a parent who would say to you, you know what, Conrad, I get it. I know it's important but I'm still scared. Yeah. And so so there are a couple of ways of, of looking at it. Um, the, the first is, if you're feeling scared, um, you don't want your child to feel scared when they're having to talk about an unsafe situation with you. Um, because that's that's a lot more serious than you feeling scared about discussing this stuff educationally with your child. Now, so that's one thing. So remember that whatever feelings you might be having, it's much, much worse if your child feels they can't have a conversation about something awful that's happened to them. The other other thing to bear in mind is the long-term benefits to you as a parent about starting these conversations early. Um, you'll find it actually helps you to have a good relationship with your children. You'll actually you'll actually start to have a more open relationship. And when you do hit the teen bracket, that so when you go into puberty and you're having to deal with some of the fallout of hormones and all of that, you're giving yourself a much higher chance of being able to communicate well with your teenager so it all starts further back so that's a long-term benefit um the key really is to is to build in that that communication and part of that communication is is keeping it real so um i always say when you've got to have a conversation with a child a challenging conversation or a difficult conversation keep it real children quite young children can be very adept at recognising when an adult is putting a front on things. Language, keep it simple, use slang, um, make it relevant uh, and easy to understand. Don't be scared of silence. Now, silence is a big one because a lot of people find silence uncomfortable, but sometimes children need time to process information and to be able to put into words what they're thinking or what they feel. Um, so silence can actually be a good thing, and it's, it's good to actually allow silence for that processing time. 
Absolutely. Um, One of my all-time favorite quotes that I'm repeating all the time is from Tim Ferriss. And he says, let the silence do the work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a really good one. Absolutely. Um, And and that kind of leads to another one. What's the environment that we're having the conversation in? Think about where you want the conversation to take place because that has a huge impact on a child's ability to be able to absorb the information that you're discussing. Um, But also environment has a huge factor in them feeling comfortable to actually talk. So if something has happened or if they're in a bit of a crisis moment, they need to be in an environment that helps them to feel safe, but also comfortable enough to talk and feel like they're heard. Um, validating feelings that I can't understate that one enough because um, so rather I can't overstate it enough they um, they need to feel like their feelings are valid what they are feeling and how that's translating they need to know that that's that's important um, if we diminish how a child feels, if we make fun of um, or we are dismissive of how a child or young person might be feeling. It is, it's very easy for parents to just minimise yeah. the feeling in the moment. Yeah, you're being silly. How, yeah. I, I, I remember hearing that one as a child, you know, of course. don't be silly. You're being silly. You're being pathetic. You're all right. You know? Yeah. I, yeah. Or you'll be fine. Well, to them internally, they may not feel fine and they may not think they're going to feel fine. So it's really, really important that they feel like you're validating their feelings. And we do that by saying, you know, I, I can understand that must be tough or um, you look like you, you're feeling uneasy or you're upset or sad. Actually, you know, talking through with them what those feelings might look like, um, you know, it's like in my day we had it much harder it's not helpful (laughs) no and I was going to say I often find it really helpful with my boys to put myself into a situation where I felt something similar so you know for example if Mm. they're nervous about cross country then I'll relay you know what I remember my first ever dance concert that I did I had all of these funny feelings in my tummy and you know just letting them know that that's normal yeah and, and that is normal. And then it is normalizing it. That's so important. Um, if they don't, you know, and it's worth pointing out, and I've worked with a lot of young people over the years where this has occurred. If they don't feel they can talk about their feelings with you, they may well seek validation from individuals outside of the home who aren't safe. Mm. And um, I can't stress that enough because. What, they are, what they're generally looking for is somebody they can talk to about how they feel. It's opening, I guess, if that need's not being met at home, it's yeah. potentially an unmet need that, you know, someone who is skilled at spotting vulnerability, they could zero yeah. in on that. Yeah. So if, if you um, if profile of a groomer, so somebody who's... Uh, perpetrator looking to groom a child uh, and young person that is what they're looking for they're looking for vulnerability and vulnerability can appear different for different kids 
So we do ten, have a tendency to stereotype, but you use the right terminology when you said unmet need, because an unmet need can look very different to different people. So you might have a child who comes from a, an affluent, um, well-to-do background, everything seems fine, but if the emotional needs are unmet, then that's quite a powerful vulnerability for a perpetrator to spot. And um, frequently you will see, especially within the teenage age range, you'll see teenagers um, targeted with love and affection and nurture because that they're seeking relationships, they're seeking, that's, you know, a complex age range for young people to go through. And um, if they're not getting those emotional needs met, if they're not feeling like their feelings are being validated uh, at home, they're highly likely to seek validation outside of the home and um, it makes them more, more vulnerable. More susceptible. I think that's such a big one and I'm sure that so many parents listening will be going, uh-huh, okay noted that's a powerful one and you've mentioned the recognize react and report I guess framework mm. and that's synonymous with the Morecambe Foundation I'd really love to just yes. unpack this with you so if we start with recognize when it comes to kids I imagine that that's about teaching them to recognize unsafe situations or people but also as you touched on, when their body is experiencing those mm. sensations, you know, that fight or flight um, response yeah. that could be triggered. Is that how you would explain recognise when it comes to kids? Yeah, I, I it, it is. And I think it's important for us to contextualise um, because obviously different age brings with it different situations. Mm. Um, so that might look different for different children, young people. Um, but yeah, ultimately, if you've laid the groundwork around helping them to understand their body and that their body belongs to them, um, and it really that that awareness, that early safety messaging, then it's going to make it easier for them to actually recognise when something isn't right. And obviously, that becomes more sophisticated the older a child gets, because Generally, you tend to find as children get older, there's a higher level of independence that comes with it, which means that, you know, the, the range of situations, both socially and physically, are going to change, uh, which means that the context for safe, safe or unsafe situations changes. Yeah, so that just adapts with their cognitive ability to yeah. also recognise all of those things. And how does recognise translate for parents? What are some things that we should be mindful of recognising? Mm -hmm. So, you know, early you mentioned about being involved in your child's life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, if you're going to actually pick up well on what's going on for them, you'll find um, the more active involvement you have in their lives, the more easily you're going to pick up when something is amiss. Um, and this is where it's really important to take an active interest in what they're doing. Um, what are they like? What's their normal baseline behaviour? Are they not eating much? Are they not sleeping very well? 
how how well we respond to those things will help to unpack for us what's actually going on in their lives so you'll actually generally if something's not right you'll see a break with their normal baseline behavior um and and we kind of we almost want a bit of a benchmark really in terms of well what we're used to when everything's happy and they're healthy and things are going well um and it's useful for us to actually explore that in our own minds what does my child look like when, when things are great when everything's going well what does that look like so then when something's not right it'll make it a little bit easier for us to actually spot or recognize when something is amiss and that then then we unpack that then we dig and you know have conversations talk what's going on for them that's a really great thought activity for parents to do especially with everything that's going on in the world right now there are so many different areas of our life that are pulling for our attention you know we've got our work situation can be changing yeah. our social situations we're feeling concern for the whole world where you know we're missing family we're missing friends we're trying to adapt and so I guess this is a time when asking yourself that question what is my child's baseline yeah what does that actually look like that's a really great thought exercise and if you can't answer that then that's a really cool wake-up call I think so because we have a tendency to actually um, react <laughs> in times when crisis kicks off but if we've actually prepared ourselves and we've actually put in a little bit of work beforehand, sometimes we can make it easier for ourselves to actually actually be able to spot and stuff. Bring that ground and, Well, it, absolutely. And, and if you think in terms of early intervention, um, I, I've, I've worked with a lot of parents over the years where the first they have spotted that something is wrong is when something's gone really wrong. And and you regularly hear the, the, the question, how on earth did I not see what was going on? And actually, when you then start to track back with a parent, they actually kind of go, yeah, do you know, now that you mention it, I did notice X, Y, Z. And and I think that's the key. We need we need to actually in in the good times and when things are going well, we, that's when we actually need to do that groundwork. Because then we're more likely to actually spot um, spot the stuff that isn't isn't in the right place. Mm. And I can just just listening to you speak, then just thinking of another real life example I can slot in there as well. Just because I know that sometimes that's helpful for parents is because we've always used the terminology, like the correct terminology for all body parts. When mm. my boys started going to school, one day they came came home and one of them instead of saying penis, said doodle or willy. I can't remember which one it was. And I said to him, oh, that's a new one. Where have you heard that? And so it automatically, because I was having a conversation yeah. with them, it was a red flag for me going, why are they talking about that at school? And then they were able to provide context of one of their friends got hit in the ball, got hit with a ball. And he <laughs> said that, that hit me in the willy or the doodle, whatever it was. Yeah. But it was also a moment for me going, oh, that's different language. And I guess that, you know, that could have been coming from another adult who was, you know, talk. it, it just makes you, 
I guess it's another way to frame how important it is to be involved in their world, use that terminology and recognise when yeah. something is different. Absolutely right. I, I, and, and you've hit, you know, you, you, that's a really good example because that's something that has gone amiss in your own brain there. You've heard something that's not in line with and normal it was totally routine or habit. Absolutely. But it, but it might not have been. So, um, yeah. That's right. You're that absolutely you right. Well, thank you. Just, I'll just always play that again. <laughs> You're absolutely right. <laughs> um, now, you mentioned the word react before. Yes. How do you encourage young children in particular to react if they do ever find themselves in that unsafe situation? Yeah, so um, it's good It's good to actually have a plan. And, and again, depending on the age of the child would depend on, you know, what, what plan you talk through with them. Um, but it, it, that, that reaction might be a, a physical reaction in terms of, scream help um saying no really loudly um running away from a situation going to tell somebody who might be a safe adult um you know in a school situation it might be the teacher in the family situation um it, it might be a specific family member um part of one of the things that we encourage um as part of that is is developing uh, uh you, you might be familiar with our safety hand but mm. listing five safety helpers on each finger and thumb of the hand so that they know and they can practice who those safety helpers are um because reacting in the moment is one thing but you then obviously write who do i tell what do i do so That's so helpful it, it's but again how sophisticated that looks and becomes as the child gets older is um is important to factor in as well so you kind of have to unpack it in a bit more detail it might be that when they hit their early teens um you your plan looks a bit more sophisticated because they're likely to have a mobile phone by that point so who's who's on their speed dial in an emergency um you know who who can i who can i text what app might i have downloaded on the phone if i need help in an emergency um discussing things like passwords you know family passwords that's quite important especially for younger kids because it might be for whatever reason and, and things do happen where a parent can't get to school to pick up the child um, because something's happened at work or there's been an accident. They've, you know, suddenly nobody turns up at school to pick up the child. And then a friend's mum might, might come along with a friend in the car, say, oh, well, I'll give you a lift home. Um, that, that can be one of those between a rock and a hard place moments for a child because on the one hand their school friend is in the car with them um, but then there's this adult that they may or may not know very well you know parent of that friend um, we'd be looking to actually encourage family passwords so that if that friend 
friend's mum is a trusted person for the family they know what that password is and and so yeah that's okay they can they can jump in the car otherwise you want that you want it to be almost a bit black and white in those moments where the child knows they can stay in school until you know because that's the safe place and that's just it because it can be I mean it's a grey zone for us as adults even at times let alone for a developing mind to try and process you know what the right thing is to do in that moment and like you said that family password makes it very clear that if they've got the password, mum and dad have given them the approval to be one of your safe helpers, as you say. Absolutely. And if, if not, then that's yeah. fine to not, you know, hop in the car. So that's really, really helpful. And yeah. again, just with the um, with the React part of the tagline, what does React mean if a child discloses something to a parent? How how would you advise a parent to react? Obviously, we we cross our fingers and our toes that no parent listening is ever in that situation. But should they find themselves there, how could they react in a way that's um, Mm. helpful? Yeah, so this really comes down to um, how how well you communicate. Um, Because one of the key things is for the child, they need to feel safe. and how safe they feel in the moment of a disclosure can very much be influenced by your reaction. Um, you might hear something that causes you to want to explode. Um, it's important that they see that you have it together. You might not be feeling together inside, um, but they need to know that you're not panicking because that will reassure them and, and confirm for them that you're in control you're the safe adult in their life. You have it together. You know what to do. They don't have um, to take on your emotions. That's that's absolutely right. Because uh, otherwise, that can actually exacerbate the situation, and and it can actually cause the trauma of of an incident to um, extend beyond the moment itself. Um, in a, in an unhelpful way. Uh, so it, it comes back to really again that keeping it real. Um, you know, using using a phrase or, or language, you know, something like I'm finding this tough to talk about. Maybe you are, too. Um, it's important that they understand that you're honest as well. Don't uh, know authentic. Um, the language that you use, again, keep it simple. You want them to lead the conversation, not you. Um, if you're dealing with a disclosure, that's really important. Um, but it is okay to ask questions like, how did that make you feel? Um, what happened next? And and you can validate those feelings by saying, I understand that that might have been really tough or very upsetting. Um, again, your body language. Um, if you're looking agitated, You've got arms folded, crossed. They need to feel that you are open to what they're saying. So it's important to normally what I would say, and, I, and I've had to deal with disclosures from uh, children and quite a number of children over the years. And um, it's actually good not to not to be um, directly positioned directly in front of them. Um, avoid eye, eye contact. 
it's much easier for them to open up and talk if they don't feel like they're being scrutinized. Uh, so what I would normally do is position myself myself either alongside or at an angle adjacent um, to them. Um, it, it's it's also important, really important to consider where you are in the moment of a disclosure as well. If you've got other ears around, other children, you, you need to think about that in terms of setting um, because you don't want to vicariously traumatize another child um, that's that's absolutely vital um, absolutely. Uh, the, sorry go on yeah no I was just I didn't mean to interrupt I was just going to say that with the word react as well again just for those listening who have younger kids as well you can I and I could be wrong but something that I think is important is when your child tells you the truth about other things watch how you react yes. so a real life example again I had one of my boys kept pulling his curtains down and you know I was always saying please don't pull them down please don't pull them down and one day <clears throat> excuse me he pulled them completely off the wall and I said who did this and there was avoidance and he didn't want to admit it and we kept going around in circles and you know I did it in a an easy way for him to understand but when he finally said I did that. I gave him a big hug and spun around. I said, thank you so much for telling me the truth. Let's hang yeah. him back up. Yeah. So he wasn't punished for telling the truth. And of course, there are times when consequences are absolutely necessary. But I think that noticing the the windows of time when your child does tell you the truth and it's hard for them in other situations, it's how do you respond to that as well? Yeah, absolutely. And um. I, whenever I've taken a disclosure from a child, I've always thanked them yeah. um, because I, what you, not that I kind of want you to put yourself in their position, so to speak, but the reality is it takes, it can take a huge amount of courage and depending on what they're disclosing to you. But the reality is it, it, um, it the, the, the organization Bernardo's ran a, television campaign in the UK about um, 10 years ago and they actually they wanted to really encourage people to actually understand um, what a child went through when they disclosed so they could actually take the child seriously and believe them um, and they likened it to a child going on stage to play a musical instrument at their first school concert and you've got this entire audience of people out in front of them and they basically highlighted that for a child the anxiety that's there around that they're about to go on display and perform and it's not dissimilar when you've got a child disclosing um, abuse or disclosing something that's happened to them, the levels of anxiety, they are putting themselves on display. That is such a powerful visual. It, it, imagine that. It really is. Um, I've always I've always said never panic. Um, they uh, feedback from young people when they've been asked how uh, their disclosure could have been handled better by adults. They've often said, I don't want the adult to act shocked. I don't want to see them shocked. I want to know that they're in control. 
and that um, and that they're going to actually um, help me through this. Uh, if the young person feels that you're not emotionally sound in that moment, then that's going to make them um, question whether they should be telling you everything. Um, because it's not unusual for a child to not want to upset mummy. Um, so you you have to put you've really got to put a front on it and and, and essentially um, you know be honest. This, this is a difficult subject to talk about, but I want to hear what you have to say because it's important to me. And while we are on that topic of disclosure. For parents when it comes to report, is it heading, you know, straight to the police station if that does happen? Um, so it depends on, again, it depends on what they're disclosing. Um, if they're disclosing something that is is a, uh, a criminal, criminal offence, yeah. then uh, yes. Uh, police, child safety services, um, and I know in each state that varies slightly in terms of what they're called, who they are. Um, but it, but essentially, if if it's a criminal offence, then absolutely. Uh, it should always be reported. What I would also encourage parents to do is is actually get, get support in that space as well. If they've taken a disclosure from their child and they're then going to the police, they're, they're contacting police to let them know um, who who have they got that they can pull in to support them? Because as an adult, um, especially a parent, when you discover that your child has suffered some form of abuse, especially if it's sexual abuse, then it's important that you yourself have support to help you deal with that as well. Um, absolutely vital. Definitely. And we touched on this earlier, but when our kids are younger, we do tend to have that high level of visibility into their world and we tend mm. to be the centre of their little worlds. But as they get <laughs> older, we get pushed to the sides and there's less visibility into their days. Yeah. You know, they have school, they have their own friends. But like you mentioned, phones, they also have the online space. And with the average teenager having a phone and a computer and often within their bedroom as well, they are spending an increasing amount of time online and with social media and gaming, they're definitely communicating with people that, one, they know, but also, two, people that they potentially don't know. And I know it's a biggie, but how can parents keep their kids safe from online predators? Mm. <clears throat> so this is a question that we get quite a lot, actually. Um, look, it, it comes back to the relationship that you have with your child active involvement in their life who are they talking to what what games are they playing on the internet am i actually going to sit down and play some of those games with them on on the internet so i know what that platform looks like i know what the functions of that platform are like who's who can message in if we're going to truly understand what is going on for a child and what the risks are associated with their activities. We need to actually understand those activities. Um, and until we do, we my stance would always be, you operate with caution. Um, the, the bottom line is we set the culture that we want our children to, to also subscribe to. 
so we get them used to um, parental settings and passwords being set. We establish rules and boundaries before we even introduce them to a phone or introduce them to the online world. We we basically build on the platform of rules and boundaries that we've already put in place earlier in their life and we make that apply to the online world and, and to the technology world. So we make it quite clear before we even introduce the technology, these are the rules and boundaries. Um, I frequently see uh, parents not really taking an active interest when it comes to some of the social media platforms. Um, it, in fact, it frightens me sometimes when I when I see how many kids um, under the age of 13 who are accessing platforms like Facebook that clearly have an age, uh, minimum age requirement attached to them. And I, I think this is where it's really important for us to be clear on those rules and boundaries, not just in our household, but out there in in the real world, in the in the community, because they're they're subscribing or um, basically signing into uh, an online world that actually takes them outside of the house, and there are whole new risks that apply, but there are also rules and regulations and legal aspects that apply. Um, and I, I think it's always important to have a conversation with your child before you even get to the stage of introducing them to that, that external technology world. These are the responsibilities that come attached with it. Um, and if they understand that they have a responsibility as well, that will help help them to be a bit more aware of the fact that actually this is something different. This isn't what this isn't the same as what I've experienced up to this point. Um, you've got to deal obviously with the the peer pressure that's likely to go on outside there. But I always say that the bottom line is you're the parent. It's your responsibility. It's actually your responsibility to make that child feel safe. Um, and while they may not always understand the rules and boundaries, one of the things that the rules and boundaries will do is help them to feel safe. Mm. And I imagine too, just modelling those family rules as well. You know, yeah. that perhaps devices all get charged in one area at night and they don't go into the bedroom overnight. Just things like that. But then you have to, as a parent, also do that. Well, this is the thing, because one of the things I'm a firm believer in is what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Mm. Um, and if we're actually um, serious about treating children, young people as citizens, fellow citizens in our society mm -hmm. and community, we need to model how we expect them to be um, and want them to be. Um, that's absolutely vital right across the board across all sorts of domains so yeah I, I mean obviously um, I would I would say the older a child gets then you review you know you review your, your rules and boundaries you review, review the house rules always evolving isn't it well it, it is and I think but I think this comes back to conversation 
So how how involved you are in your child's life and what your ability is like to be able to have a conversation with your child is vital in informing all of those other things. Um, if you're already having sort of fluid conversations with them, then a lot of this stuff will actually get worked out um, without it becoming a contentious issue. Um, but it's really important that you you're quite clear before you even enter that world these are the rules these are the boundaries um and you know they again with that comes awareness and education around you know the the hidden dangers and risks that involve out there it's um it we 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 tend to struggle in society with the notion of the online world um because it's not it's not seen in the physical context so we struggle with it when it comes to safety and children um, and yet we know that it can actually lead to all sorts of issues um, so there's no really we shouldn't treat it any differently to the way we would treat um the world Real physical places yeah yeah because we know that the risks are the same online as offline that's really great information. And the other part of the online space, I guess, is regarding parents and what they share of their children, because oh, we all yes. love to post images. We all love to, you know, plaster like, kids' school uniforms is one that I'm just always like, no, like, don't upload your kid in their yeah. uniform. Like, put it in black and white, cover the emblem if you have to. But yeah. it just seems that, you know, like you said, sometimes it's easy that, you know, ignorance is bliss, nothing bad will happen to me. And, you know, on one hand, that's a lovely way, <laughs> you know, it's very yeah. idealistic, but the reality is as parents, we do have a responsibility to our children's safety with what we share of them. So what would you say in regards to that topic? We do. And um, look, I, I approach this from probably a slightly different angle. To a lot of people um but the way i come at it from is is a children's rights point of view so if we look at the fact that we have uh what's called the un convention on the rights of the child and that um one of the articles in that i think it's article 12 talks about the child having a voice and being involved in decisions that affect them now the bottom line is the moment you post a picture in the online world, that's it. It's it's out there. It and it doesn't it doesn't just stop with the social media platform that you've posted it on. It will then be out there. Um, mm. Now, has the child had a voice in that? Have they had um, a part in the decision making for you to do that? Because it's them. It involves them. When they're an adult, that photograph of them as a child will still be floating around the internet. Mm. And how are they going to feel about it then, um, especially when that's something that's been taken out of their control? So I tend to approach it from, you know, we, we want children to understand the concept of consent. Um, and we want children to understand the concept of healthy relationships and respect. But if we're actually already setting a culture there that really takes that away from them, 
that control um, around consent, then what are we at? What what's the mixed message that we're perhaps putting out there? Mm, um, that's good food for thought. And I, and again, um, I don't, I don't, I don't kind of try to present a yeah. There's a right and a wrong with that. What I do say is, if you're going to post pictures of your children in the social media space, there there is some quite clear guidance around that. Um, you can find that on uh, the eSafety Commissioner's website, um, on the uh, federal police's Think You Know website, and they actually talk about the risks related to posting photos of your kids in their school uniform, uh, with identifying landmarks in the background. Um, there's also the issue that photos can also be date stamped and um, sometimes geotagged. So there's a lot you need to actually think about when you're actually going into that space and you're saying, oh yeah, I'm just going to post this picture. Doesn't don't they look cute in their you know whatever it is their their first school uniform, first day at school? What what are we actually doing? We, we, so we need to actually stop and think about that action in that moment. The moment we release that photo, that's it. It technically no longer belongs to you because you've shoved it out into the ethernet. Mm. Such good food for thought. I love it. And it's a topic that I think is one that all parents, you know, as you said, like this is not necessarily that saying there's a right way and a wrong way, but there's definitely a mindful way. And it's going, how yeah. happy am I right now with what I'm sharing and just continually coming back and having that conversation, you know, and people often ask me why I don't share the boys' names and it's quite simple. I don't want their names out there. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, I mean, and actually, technically, it's underpinned by a, a really important principle. And that is, that is actually the responsibility of parents to keep their children safe. Mm. It's not the responsibility of children to keep children safe. So um, whatever your actions are, when you start going down that road, you need to be really almost operating with a little bit of a pressure test. And that is, is what I'm doing right now potentially a risk? Mm, a little check in with yourself. Yeah. Now, speaking of checking in, yesterday when I mentioned that I was going to be recording this podcast, I opened it up to our community to ask some questions on the topic. And I've reduced it down to the general kind of top five or six of what people were asking the number one question by a landslide was absolutely how to teach this to children without instilling terror and I feel like we've definitely touched on that in terms of how important it is to hold space for them also the language mm. keeping it conversational modeling that your own emotions are under control was there anything extra that you wanted to add to that one um I, I think I think really it comes around that that talk early stage. Um, the the earlier you're talking and having conversations, the easier it is to have those difficult conversations later on. Um, and I think with all of that, you need to reassure. Um, I think the more you reassure children that it's okay to talk and it's okay to talk to you about anything, um, the higher the chance of them coming to you when they need to talk to you. Just keeping that communication open. Yeah. 
And so the next, the next question was how to enforce online restriction without being the bad guy. <laughs> and I had to laugh and I've said this before. I'm like, it's actually your job to be the bad guy. It's actually well, your job sometimes to disappoint the kids. I, I think... I think this is, and, and you know, I understand this is a real challenge for a lot of people um, because it it can make life difficult to deal with a child who is wanting to be able to access whatever they want, whenever they want. Um, but the reality is, it is your responsibility. So you're the adult in this relationship. You're the parent. Um, I come back to what I said earlier, and that is don't leave it to get difficult. So don't wait until you hit that point where there's then a challenge and an issue. Lay the boundaries and rules quite clearly before you even introduce technology. Um, if, if you have already got the technology in place and you're finding that you're having this issue, you retain the right as the parent in the relationship to introduce new rules. If there aren't any rules in place, um, you're well within your rights to introduce them. Because again, like I say, ultimately it's your responsibility, your children safe. There are ways in which you can have that conversation. And it's important that you don't, uh, if, if you wanna keep that communication open, it's important that you don't come in too heavy you want to help them understand um, you want them to understand the risks and there are again there are plenty of resources out there to actually facilitate some of those difficult conversations but you've got to you've got to essentially be quite clear where those boundaries lie and I would also just add to that as well if there are you know two parents in the picture whether you're in a family unit or you're co-parenting mm both being on the same page so that it's not a case of one being the best friend and one being the bad guy. It's yeah. having that united front of this is what's best for our family. I guess that can also help with taking the pressure off feeling like you're the tough parent or you're the, you know, you're the bad cop for lack of a better expression. Yeah. And, and look, you know, and, that, and that's a valid, that's a valid point because children living across two households mm. Um and it can be difficult, especially if parents in those households don't see eye to eye. Yeah, um, my the my response always is that commit it from the children's point of view. So when I say commit it from the children's point of view, it's important that you're taking a, a you know a child's rights point of view. That is, this is about their safety. Forget whatever grievances we might have. Forget whatever personal opinions we have. Let's actually take an evidence fact-based approach and really pull in the guidance that you see on um, sites like the Safety Commission um, or you know the, the federal police's guidance around that online safety stuff. Um, that's just it. When you have those resources, it does make it easier to say, look, this is not coming from an emotional place or yeah. me wanting control. The facts are the facts. Let's go with this. That's absolutely right. And and I think not that I want to use scare tactics, <laughs> but I, I think it is sometimes useful to reflect, depending on the age of the child, um, whether you happen to have that conversation with a child or whether you're having that conversation with 
um, with the other parent who who lives in another household, it's important to reflect on the why. What, you know, what do we know has happened when these things haven't been done? Um, and we know we know the reality is that um, there are cases children have uh, been persuaded to expose themselves online um, where children have been groomed online so I think while I you know I don't want to I wouldn't want to ever sort of fear be a fear mongerer but the reality is it is important that we reflect on the why love that and another question that came through a lot was how to approach sleepovers oh yes ah <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes yes um so tricky this is a con this is c all down to context um what's the age range and I, and I think it's important to look at age range um developmental age um who who are they having a sleepover with where um, who's going to be there and how does it look um, and really if my child doesn't feel comfortable at any stage how can they access me mm. so I though those are really key questions to ask because and I think the reality is if my child can't access me at a moment's notice when they're on a sleepover, then to me, that's that's a, a, a big no. Mm. Because I want them to know, uh, up till this point in their life, if I've taught them, I always want them to reach out to me when, when they're in a time of need. Um, I want them to be able to talk to me if there's something that makes them feel unsafe or uncomfortable. We need them to be able to have access to you. So yeah. what, do, what does that look like? So can they access me? If they, if they need me to come and pick them up because um, they don't feel safe or they're uncomfortable, uh, they need to be able to access me in a moment's notice. I, th yeah. I think that's a just an absolutely brilliant point on sleepovers. And I know a lot of the questions that were coming through were saying, parents saying that, you know, their kids really want to have sleepovers, but the parents are not comfortable with it yet. So having those conversations about how would you access that, you know, how would you access me in a moment's notice that provides your child with comfort, but also you as a parent with taking away some of that, the unknown, and it just provides you with a bit of visibility on if they needed you, this is how they would go about it. Absolutely. And, and I think the other thing to remember is when you're having, I think it's important that children understand the rationale as well. So if you're saying no, you're not just saying no for the sake of saying no. Um, you know what 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 are the key issues here um, and uh, helping them to actually understand that that stuff's important because otherwise you could be in danger of actually sending out two messages you've already done all of that work with them around safety and um, staying safe and reaching out to your safety helpers when you need them and who they are and what their numbers are but then you're undermining that on the other hand by allowing um, sort of things like a sleepover to happen where they can't do that. Um, so I think for me, first and foremost, it would always be, can they access me? 
if they need me at a moment's notice. Consistency um, is so important. Yeah, and then from there you can work backwards. Well, who, who's, who's it with? Because you might not want, you know, and, and that's the other thing to bear in mind is you might find that um, the person they want to go and have the sleepover with, you're not particularly keen on the idea because um, they, there tends to be some bad behaviour rubbing off there or some bad habits occurring. Um, you, you need to be able to have that conversation as well. You need to be able to talk around that stuff. You know, why? Um, but age, age is definitely important to factor in. And I, and I think ultimately the bottom line is, um, yeah, they might be excited about sleepover, the idea of it, but they're not thinking that far ahead to when the sleepover happens and they fall out with whoever it is the sleepover's with and they want to come home and it's all gone horribly wrong. And, um, it's 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 important to kind of unpack. yeah they don't always they don't always have the foresight it was recently no. my two boys wanted to sleep downstairs in a fort that they'd made and I said sure you can do it just knowing full well come 8 30 they would definitely <laughs> be wanting to be up in their room can you know and sure yeah. sure enough they actually slept the first half of the night downstairs but by midnight they were both in my bed I just thought yeah it's always the way isn't it but it's um it's you as a parent expect it, but they don't expect it. Yeah, it, 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 that, that's absolutely right. And I, and I think you've kind of got to look at, um, you know, at the, at the end of the day, you're putting a child or you're allowing a child to be in a space where you're not supervising them. Mm. And no matter how you might trust um, the parents of another child, um, the reality is they're out of their normal surroundings doing something um, that they're not used to and that that can actually that can actually cause um, variation in the way they might respond to difficult or challenging situations as well so you you want you want some resilience there before they actually go into that stage of having sleepovers have they got the resilience to actually cope with a sleepover another really 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 valuable point as well another question that came through a lot was how do you explain the why of why some people do awful things oh yeah that's um that's a difficult one um do you know what i would say in reality parents need to do they need to actually practice that conversation before they find themselves in a conversation <coughs> on that issue um, and I think it's okay to practice it in your own head you know what what would that look like or practice it with another adult talk it through what, you know what what does this look like um, I think it, it's not unusual for those conversations to come up at dinner time you know they've heard something during the course of a day or something has happened that's triggered them to kind of ask the question um, and I think I think it deserves d dedicated time to actually talk it through with a child. Uh, so I think it's about finding really a quiet moment to actually talk that through. Um, find out. I, I'd be asking them why they ask first. What do they know? So what's happened? What is it that's triggered them to ask that question? Yeah. Because the. 
because there's bad and then there's bad. <laughs> That's right. So, so context, context is really important. <laughs> you know, is it is it because one of their friends or someone in their social circle at school has um, took a pencil off them when they were doing a drawing to use themselves without asking? You know, something as simple as that. So I think you need to contextualise it according to the issue. When you're dealing with particularly difficult things, um, I think it's important to tell the truth and um, help them to understand at a level um, that is easier for them. But lay out the facts. Um, you don't necessarily need to give graphic details when you're when you're talking through bad stuff. But I think it's important to lay out the facts. Um, and you know, some some of that starts in conversations that you might have with children at a young age around things like death. Mm. What what's you know what does death what is death about? Um, so I think it's it's kind of having those scaffolding conversations beforehand before you even get to this moment of ah uh, something's happened. There's been a shooting or a stabbing or you know um, and why do bad people do this? Um, and um, I was just going to say, would it be appropriate, so say, for example, there is a child who's between, um, you know, four and six, just for example's sake, and they've heard something on the news about, um, you know, a shooting, like you mentioned, mm. or, you know, given that you're from the Morecambe Foundation, a child has been kidnapped, taken, a child's been hurt, and they want to know why an adult would do that. Is it suitable to say there are some adults who have problems with the way they think? There, you know, like how would you frame it with the actual? Like, what would be the actual terminology that you could use in that instance? Mm. Um, I, I think I'd start. I'd, I'd always start with leading that the majority of people don't want to do bad things um, because you you don't want them to really go into the world thinking that everybody around them is bad and is out mm. to get them or do something nasty to them but i think it's important to to help them understand that the majority of people don't want to do bad things um and it, it's it's only it's only a small number of people that would do something like that and when they do there can be a number of reasons for it some of it might be because of what happened to them when they were younger um uh, I, I think you've got to contextualize it based on your age range i i think for some some children you're going to read it according to what you know might affect them and um how you telling them or giving them further information might impact on them uh, uh but I think it tends to be, in those instances, it tends to be a fluid conversation. Um, and I would, I would generally want to be reassuring them around, um, you know, the fact that uh, it's not, not everybody wants, wants to do something nasty to you. Mm, that's um, really helpful. But it, it's, again, it's contextual. It, it's about really what, what's brought that on. It's subject? so hard to give a really broad answer to that, I know, because the temperament, setting, 
everything, like I said, all of the context is so important, but I think that everything you've touched on is really helpful and there's been so many great little moments of food for thought that I'm sure our listeners will really, really appreciate. So thank you so much for being willing to share your knowledge with our listeners and your time. You're I know welcome. that we've gone a bit over time, but <laughs> there's just so much that you know there I, that I wanted to cover and it's such a big topic, but I am super, super grateful. And before I let you get on with the rest of your day, yeah. I would just love to end our chat on a little bit of a lighter note with our, our round of rapid fire questions Ooh. that we ask all of our guests. So it's just light, get to know you style, um, you know. So the very first response that pops into your mind is brilliant. So if you're ready, I'll hit you. Okay. <laughs> okay the first one is, Conrad, what is your go-to standard cafe order? Oh, it depends on time of day, but it would probably be a, if it's morning, long black with milk. That's the same as mine, long black with a dash of almond always gets yeah. me through would you say that you are a sweet or savory person savory how would you describe your daily uniform Ooh. uh comfortable <laughs> <laughs> classic and what is your favorite song at the moment oh dear uh that's a really hard one there are so many my favorite song. silence do the work <laughs> oh my days um my favorite song at the moment uh well actually what i'm listening to at the moment um is a mixed playlist of uh cafe del mar chill out music awesome so good for working as well i always like those chill out yeah. playlists when i'm tapping away at the computer what would you say your worst habit is oh <sighs> Uh, there are so many. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my worst habit, I would say, is probably uh, probably apologising too much. And number six would be, what's your best habit? My best habit, listening. Listening, I love that. And what is your must-read book recommendation, if you have one? Uh, must-read. Um, if it's fiction and it's purely escapism, I'm a bit of an old romantic, so it would probably be The Count of Monte Cristo. Um, if it was non-fiction and you're talking biographical, um i would normally go to something like roald dahl and boy which is the story of his life yes right i've heard really good things about it but i've not read it so i'll have to add it to my list now we touched on this at the start of the chat but what keeps you aligned personally like what keeps you feeling good yourself uh i think I think knowing that I am making a difference um, and that the reality is um, even if what I do helps one child or vulnerable person, then that's okay. Um, I always think of the story of the uh, 
starfish washed up on the beach and the person that was seen throwing them back in and someone coming along saying there are too many how can you you know how can you possibly make a difference and their response was it made a difference to that one that i just threw back so yeah you definitely are making a difference and last but not least do you have an all-time favorite quote uh yeah the one that always sticks with me is um i think it was nelson mandela and it's um something along the lines of the time is always ripe to do good i love that well, thank you so much. I have no doubt that our community will want to stay in the loop with all of the amazing work that you're doing with the foundation. Yeah. And I'm sure that a few will even jump over and make a donation, which we will have all of that info in the show notes. Fantastic. But just for those still listening, where and how can people stay up to date and find out more? So, um, so a couple, couple of places. The first point of contact or um, port of call would be the website danielmorkhamfoundation.com.au and on there we've got all sorts of resources so some of the stuff we've talked about today you can actually access resources and fact sheets that can help um, with with some of the issues uh, especially the communicating with children and young people we've got lots on there for that um, we've got uh, facebook page um, and we regularly post on that throughout the course of the day and the week so that will often announce the launch of any new activities or resources that are coming out so things like uh, we've got a board game coming out um, in a couple of months time uh, we've got Australia's biggest child safety lesson that will be live streaming out uh, we've got two of those one in June and one in September um, so yeah F facebook and our website we do have a twitter um account as well so we post on twitter regularly and instagram brilliant i'll make sure that we have all of the links to everything there um Fantastic. in the show notes and again just thank you so so much for being so willing and available with your time and your knowledge today you're always welcome Thank you.